The Holy Gospel according to Mark, the first chapter. As soon as Jesus and the disciples left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still dark, he got up and went to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Last week we uh, spoke of the awesomeness with which God is often described in Scripture, which is something many these days I think often underappreciate. Uh, first of all, because the word awesome anymore doesn't mean awesome anymore. It means, um, you know, cool, as near as I can tell. And secondly, because the God people describe so often these days, I think, is, is so oftentimes so innocuously cozy that there really isn't any more any room in all that cuddliness for a God whose very godness could ever be, well, not cuddly, but maybe even intimidating. So beyond us as to drive us not automatically to the singing of love songs, but, but rather to our knees. In case that point didn't sink in last week, our Old Testament lessons this week double down on that same theme as we hear from the prophet Isaiah and the psalmist. And so Isaiah says, have you forgotten? Have you never known that God is so God that the vastness of the heavens are the mere tent that God lives in and that when God looks down from God's tent at us, including the greatest among us who live not in tents but in castles with thrones and in white houses with oval offices, When God looks at us, including the so-called greatest among us, God sees beings who are no more than grasshoppers compared to us, which is a pretty dramatic image, made even more dramatic when you factor in modern science's realization that compared to the vastness of the universe, well, grasshoppers, not even. For our whole planet is a mere speck of dust in the vastness of it all and thus so even more so in comparison to the vastness of the creator of all. 
For, as the psalmist says, there's no limit to God's wisdom. God is a God who even numbers the stars and calls them by name, which is another image made even more dramatic when you factor in today's science and its realization that even with all of the scientific tools at our disposal, we've only known and named a small percentage of the stars in the heavens given the fact that science's estimate today is that there are more stars in the heavens than there are grains of sand on all of Earth's beaches combined. And you can't begin to imagine, the psalmist says, how unimpressed the all-wise and all-powerful creator of all God is with those in the world who think themselves oh so wise and powerful. So are you on board now with, according to Isaiah and the psalmist, how great is our God? Actually, no. No, you are not. For Isaiah and the psalmist aren't done yet. Do you think God is great because God knows the numbers and names of every single star in the heavens, they say? Do you think God is great because Nebuchadnezzar of Baghdad and Cyrus of Persia and Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un are mere dust mites compared to him, they say? That is nothing, they say. Because do you want to know how great the greatness of our God truly is, they say? And then they say this, Isaiah 40, 29, he gives power to the faint and strength to the powerless. Psalm 147, the Lord heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The Lord lifts up the lowly. How great is God? Isaiah and the psalmist say, oh my, they answer, God is great, not only with greatness so great that the world's self-proclaimed great are nothing in comparison. God, Isaiah and the psalmist say, is great with greatness that is even greater than that, for God not only knows the names and numbers of the stars that are too many to name and number, God too knows the names and needs of those on this tiny dust speck of a planet whom the world's great are by and large greatly uninterested in naming or caring about, preferring rather to overlook or stereotype or marginalize or use or abuse or all of the above. God, Isaiah and the psalmist and the scriptures say over and over again, our God, great beyond great, beyond imagination in terms of what we with our little tiny brains even begin to imagine is greater still with the greatness of compassion. Compassion especially for those whose needs are greatest. That compassion, of course, we as Christians claim was tented in the flesh of Jesus of Nazareth who greatly compassionately did all that he did all the way to a cross for those whose greatest need was and remains the need for healing forgiveness. But who too on the way from Bethlehem to Nazareth to the cross reached to help and heal all he could find and whose needs were whatever they were in the world when he went to them and found them where they were. If they were hungry, he fed them. If they were in bondage, he freed them. If they were hated, he loved them. If they were sick, he healed them. If they were empty, he filled them. And in three cases mentioned in Scripture, if they were dead, he raised them. 
Which takes us to our gospel text for today where the one we meet and whom he also compassionately cared about and therefore healed was Simon Peter's mother-in-law who, says Mark, was in bed with a fever and they told him about her at once and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her and she began to serve them. A very interesting observation in the Greek of the original New Testament text. He lifted her up. Could also be translated, he raised her up. For it's the very same Greek word, egairo, that Mark will use in the last chapter of his gospel where the angel says to the women outside of Easter's tomb, why are you looking for Jesus of Nazareth here? He's not here. He has been egairoed. He's been raised up. And that use of the very same Greek word for raised up in both of these stories is interesting. Why? Because it tells us that in Mark's understanding of it all anyway, resurrection is not limited only to being raised up to eternal life at the end of our days and years on earth. Resurrection also includes being raised up to new life as we live our days and years according to the desires of God on earth. And what are the desires of God for God's people on earth? People, come on, weren't you paying attention? God's desires for God's people on God's earth are not to see us climbing to be with greatness over or at the expense of others, but rather stooping to be great with greatness that is the greatness of service to others and compassion for others. Which in our gospel text for today makes Peter's mother-in-law not, as she is sometimes stereotyped, not an outdated model of female subservience, but rather a contemporary model of the church in faithful obedience. When it says that she raised up, resurrected from her illness, got up, and served them, which we greatly misunderstand if we make this a dated and paternalistic story of she, a woman, being raised up to serve the needs of men. This is a date-without-end story about the people of God, Christ's church, being raised up to serve the needs of the world which took some of us last month on a mission trip to Texas, where, supported by your just incredible generosity, we, mostly the week we were there, we actually helped just two families. And someone said to me, why those two families? And the answer is because we were partnering in our work with the ELCA's Texas Gulf Coast Synod through a local uh, ELCA Lutheran church, and the church knew of this particular neighborhood where these two families, and more families too, we find out, were very much still in need, even though Hurricane Harvey was clear back last summer. What I didn't know until the last night we were there and I was visiting with some of the, the, the folks what we were, who were helping us, is that the reason this particular neighborhood and others like it were still in need compared to some other neighborhoods which had been in the Houston area that were well on their way to recovery, the reason is that FEMA money 
was more available by far to American citizens than it was to the undocumented. Pastor Arthur Murphy, the senior pastor of the Lutheran Church we worked with, also texted me just Thursday to tell me about an article in the Houston Chronicle this week which said that FEMA money was also disproportionately unavailable not only to the undocumented but also to the poor. Not, I imagine, because FEMA is purposefully against helping the poor, but rather, I imagine, because the resources of FEMA, like so many other things in the world, are simply more accessible to those with the means to access them. I learned that kind of thing just a few months ago here in Iowa City, helping a a gentleman in town access some assistance he was completely eligible for, but I helped him get it by completing a 14-page form, which I'm here to tell you he would never, ever, ever possibly have been able to fill out all by himself. So our team went to that Houston neighborhood, and we met some beautiful uh, new friends, Jose, Monica, Julia, Anna, Juan, and Margarita, whose needs were not just because of a storm last August, because also um, help that was available to others wasn't as available to them. To which some might say, well, American taxes should be used to help American citizens, which in America, the land of the free, is an opinion you have the right to hold and the right to share and the right to express. It's just that I do ask those who hold that opinion to remember that it's not just American citizens who pay taxes. I mean, it's fallen out of favor, but let's keep facts in mind when holding to our positions. One fact being, according to an article I read in Forbes magazine this week, not a bastion of liberal drivel, this week in Forbes magazine said that the undocumented pay nearly $12 billion in taxes in this country annually, and I ask those who have the opinion that I expressed earlier that if you want America to be an America that is one nation under God, and you want that God to be the Judeo-Christian God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, well then remember that facts are facts, and the fact is that the God of Testaments old and new, though he chose and specifically blessed one nation, the nation of Israel, one of the clearest themes in all of Scripture is that that nation was chosen and blessed to be a blessing to God's whole world. In the name of that God, 21 of us went to Texas and a whole lot of you way beyond generously supported that and made it possible. And we did that wearing our God's Work, Our Hands t-shirts Because we wanted the people in Texas, that neighborhood, to know that we weren't just there because of how much we care, we Iowans. We were there because we're the church. We were there so that they could know, too, and above all, how much our awesomely awesome God cares. Why? Because God, our God, is a great God whose very greatest greatness isn't just the greatness of only greatness, but also and above all the greatness of compassion, which is compassion especially expressed for those whose needs are the greatest. Amen.